welcome listeners one and all welcome to regency rumors the podcast where a british american couple recap and discuss bridgerton the regency netflix show i'm jordan and i'm kayla we're on to episode three art of the swoon do i make you swoon i don't know if that's what i would call it (laughs) thanks very much you bring me cups of tea without asking and so that's really what matters all right i mean i'll take it I, i do think it is funny that i have you know persuaded you to to drink tea more than anything else i think in some ways you're more british than you are american i think that's traitorous but is that a word traitorous Mm, yeah (laughs) i'll go with it i think that's traitorous but i will take it i i don't (laughs) i don't mind being adopted by the british i think i've been here long enough that i'd be fine with that at this point but I do drink lots of cups of tea. And I think definitely when we go back to my parents to visit, they kind of can see, oh, she's addicted to tea. What has happened to her? So, yeah, it's it's a bit of a problem. We are definitely addicted to tea. We are. Although I've been drinking a lot of coffee lately because... That's better. That's a solution to not drinking tea is, is just taking up a coffee habit. Look, it's all caffeine, all right? That's true. And we're in a pandemic... Everybody's up all hours of the night and up different hours of the day. So, well, I mean, I I do have a full time job, so I'm I'm definitely not trying to. <laughs> but there we go. It's 2021. We're just trying to survive in any way we can with coffee, with coffee and tea. <laughs> So I just want to say thanks to all our listeners. Uh, It's exciting to see our new followers rising and people joining the group. We've been thinking about episodes that we could do after the recap for season one of Bridgerton, and we're excited to say we've got a couple experts coming on the podcast to talk about some themes that are explored in Bridgerton. So make sure that you are subscribed to Regency Rumors uh, wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss out on that. If you've got any suggestions of themes in Bridgerton or life in the Regency era that you'd like for us to cover, either comment on our Facebook group, www.facebook.com slash groups slash Regency Rumors, or email us at aregencygirl at gmail.com for suggestions. And that is Regency Rumors with a U. I'm going to make that comment literally every time. I kind of think it's funny. It doesn't make you superior just because you think that's the way it has to be spelt. There's literally nothing about superiority in it. It's That is literally how it's spelled. People will not get to the group if they try and spell it the American way. <sighs> I would also like to point out that you set up the group, which means that you spelt it with a U. <laughs> I'm going to say that my computer did it that way. Your computer's set up to US English. Oh. Well, I don't know. I get very confused. I've been here long enough that... I don't realize what words are British and what are American. I really don't. I can be talking to my sister or a friend and I'll say something and they'll be like, I don't even know what that means. And I won't even realize it's not a word that they don't use. I am I think I'm interchangeable now, which... It's not a word that they do use. You said, never mind, double negatives. So this week, <laughs> Kayla's been buying Regency dresses um, because we get to go to so many events whilst in national lockdown. And I haven't really thought about a time period that I would like to dress like, or, you know, what styles that there are other than Regency. Because, like, you know, I've always found something intriguing about the Middle Ages. And 
and I guess what some people call like the Dark Ages and stuff, right? So um, about 1200 or so, and like 1000 to 1200, um, particularly like early English history. So this is like just when we could arguably call some of those smaller nations English people rather than Anglo-Saxons or Vikings or, you know, whoever it was that had come over. But I don't necessarily think that they had what you'd call a fashion sense. Yeah, I, I'm going to be honest. I don't really have that much interest in dressing like that. There's like, I know Regency gowns have almost, you know, no waist. But I mean, medieval clothing is definitely, it's it's not great if you're wanting to show off your figure or, or if you're wanting to have that hourglass look about you. I, I definitely think that it's it's not the most fashionable. Okay, okay, but, but <laughs> let's let's be clear here. I wouldn't be wearing that because it looks good. It's just when when you think about the history period that you're interested in and like how they dress, you think of Regency and, and like Georgian period and blah, 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 blah. Whereas for me, I don't f- like my most interesting historical period personally is that time of, of, you know, the British Isles history. So, you know, that's that's kind of they're the options I've got, like a big cloth poncho that you put a belt around your waist and there you go. You just want to be able to get like a bow and arrow out and shoot things with it and put a cloth over you so that you can do that in the woods. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> oh my gosh. Meanwhile, I really want you to be in long boots and looking like Mr. Darcy. I'm I'm determined it's going to happen. One day we're going to get you in a full Regency suit. But if, if you want to go put a cloth on and run around in the woods, I'll support that too. But I'm definitely gonna gonna do the Regency thing. I yeah, you know, I, I I don't have much of an issue with that. Um, you can dress me how you'd like in in that kind of sense. You'll enjoy it. It'll be yeah. It'll be so much fun. You can pretend like you're a captain in the navy or something. We can get you one of those Regency navy hats. Something cute fine <laughs> let's do it <laughs> one day when we have enough money it's it's happening and i'll put it on my instagram and everybody can see that how happy we are it's the cutest little regency couple and i'm going to rope you into going to the regency festival and bath and everything and then one day you can do what is it the switch or whatever on me and if you want to go to one of those medieval things i'll put a sack on for you and and i'll walk around the woods with you if you want i'll i'll go looking for pigs in the woods and i'll make you what <laughs> i'll go looking for pit or what whatever you call it, boars in the woods at, with you and then i'll cook you some some soup how some many leather wild, soup <laughs> how many wild boars do you think still exist in the uk i don't know we can go for some boars or some bears We'll go hunting. Bears? Bears? <laughs> I'm not sure that there's been a bear on the British Isles outside of a zoo for centuries. All the hunting that I'm ever going to do is on fictional animals that don't exist anymore. So that sounds good to me. Okay, so speaking of hunting, I'm not I'm not saying that we go actually hunting, but 3D um, target archery would be really fun. And that's where the targets aren't like, you know, those big circles with the bullseye. It's... You know, it's in the woods and there'll be a, a 3D like deer or whatever that's made out of rubber, I guess. And, and you fire Okay, it. I'm done with this conversation.
welcome to Bridgerton Season 1, Episode 3, Art of the Swoon, written by Layla Cohen. Why do I get the names? Micho? Michio. I'm going to go with Michio. Directed by Tom Verica. Veruca? Verica. Tom Ver- Verica. I think we should leave that in there just so people know how <laughs> bad at naming people you are. But that, that was that was bad. So, opening scene. Surprise. Guess what? We open to the first scene of episode three to another ball. Beautiful figures are dancing under this beautiful pink tree, which is a central symbol for the show. Daphne and the Duke are dancing together. Their eyes are locked on one another. He takes off her glove to look at her hand sensually. Then all of a sudden, they are the only two people dancing. They almost kiss, but then sadly, Daphne wakes up from her dream. And then we go straight to the title card. So I'm going to go on a rant here. Uh Uh-oh. I just want to make a comment on this transition of the two of them dancing in a group of people. And then it turns out to just be the two of them dancing alone with no one there. It's meant to be like this powerful type of scene that suggests the two of them only see each other when they're dancing. But... It's just so overdone for me. This seems to be something that's been done several times in the last 10 years or so. This was done in the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice, which I think that one was really well done. Um, There was a buildup between the characters of Darcy and Elizabeth throughout the film. And then at this particular ball, the two of them are just dancing in a line of people and it soon becomes the two of them. Um, It's not overt. It's not even that they're touching a lot. Um, to where you can really guess what either of them is thinking. I think the director, Joe Wright, uh, the way he did it was really great. It forces us to see the two of them um, are warring with their feelings with one another and that they're focused on one another without it seeming too sexual or over the top. And I, I know there's sex in this, obviously, but it, it just feels like this has been used enough. It's been used in Twilight. Um, I don't know that there was much thought into that one other than people thinking that was a cool thing to do. Um, but I'm just kind of over it. It's been overdone. We already know that Daphne and the Duke have growing feelings for one another. For Jane Austen fans, this is going to be something that's really recognizable and they're going to immediately think back on, I think. And we just didn't need this. I think there could have been another way that could have been done. I'm just over this type of scene because there's nothing powerful about it anymore because it's been done so often. So yeah, sorry, rant over. Um, I mean, I definitely missed all that, obviously not being a regular viewer of these kinds of things. Um, certainly not to the same degree that, that you have been. I didn't I didn't get that. So from my perspective, it was a clever way to introduce these burgeoning feelings Daphne's having for Simon after he touched her bare skin at one of the last episode's dances and she realized... <gasps> This man is attractive. Um, so I mean, I think she realized that way before then, but okay. No, I mean, but like personally attractive to her in the sense of like, oh, I've got feelings He's for He's personally attractive to anyone, so. <laughs> okay. So anywho, um, but I, I guess I, because the, the, two, the two people thing, it's also, it was a dream, right? I would, I would completely agree with you if this had been a real dance i say real as in like a 
one that was actually happening and suddenly all these random people disappeared i'd be like well that's weird people don't just disappear in reality but it is a dream and those kinds of things happen in dreams a lot where you're in a group of people and then suddenly you're the only people you know that i i don't know i think that makes sense i i do agree that it has been done before i mean i've definitely seen it once or twice now that you've mentioned it but i don't know it didn't it didn't maybe i'm just ranting um i mean maybe listeners can chime in let us know we cut to a scene of the wonderful julie andrews narrating as lady whistledown again daphne's received and rejected three marriage proposals in a week and we see a scene of her and the Duke having a meal together, and she's too focused on him to even care about other marriage proposals. And it seems that the couple are quite united now in their effort to help Daphne find a mate. Uh, the Duke isn't reluctant at all. He definitely seems to be enjoying his time with Daphne. Uh, so much so that we have a scene where the Duke is going to town on a spoon um, that's got some ice cream on it. And it's been circulating all over the internet. And it's a hilarious way to take some of these more nuanced moments that are shown with gentlemen in period dramas and amp it up to a thousand percent. You'd never see Colin Firth doing this as Mr. Darcy, but it's the kind of thing that people probably wish in the head um, that they see, you know, that they could see, right? In the 1995 Pride and Prejudice, you don't see Firth coming out of the water all soaked and hot and shirtless. Um, side note, that's Kayla's notes, not mine. <laughs> You only see him walking up to Elizabeth cold and wet. And it's what everyone's thinking in the mind. You know, him rising up from the lake, blah, 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 blah. Here in Bridgerton, they've decided to put it in very overtly in this series, rather than just suggesting it, like in that Pride and Prejudice adaptation. Next, at the Featheringtons, Penelope tries to help Marina locate her lost love through letters, but nothing's arrived through the post, and they're kind of getting a bit down about it. Lady Featherington comes in and announces that Marina now needs to quickly find a husband before anyone finds out that she is pregnant. So I think sometimes we can assume that unwed pregnancies didn't happen during the Regency era, and they most definitely did. There were even ads that were put out for women who were unwed to go to refuges, uh, to hide their pregnancies during its duration. For a lot of women, they would go to the country for a while to have their children. But a lot of times, it really would leave women destitute. For some women, it meant leaving their baby at a church, abandoning a secret that could ruin them. Uh, I want to do a bit more research on the subject. It might be cool to have someone talk on the subject a bit more because I, I definitely would like to learn more. I don't know very much about this because... I've not really researched it, so I don't want to speak too much on it. But anyways, one way or another, you feel for Marina because it's not just that she's had an unexpected pregnancy. She's in risk of losing everything. Yeah, definitely. And that's interesting. It would be good to speak to someone who knows more about it. And I, I again, I don't really have a clue about this, so I'm not going to say much. But to go back to the over-the-top nature of that spoon-licking scene, it's it's funny because I totally blocked that from my mind the first time that we watched the show. I did see the meme afterwards, but it wasn't until re-watching that I realised how overt and, like, unrealistic it is. So, yeah, totally funny, but it's just nobody eats ice cream like that. No, I think it's just kind of a way to stick that in there. And like I'd put in the notes, you know... The scene with Mr. Darcy, Colin Firth, in, in the 1995 Pride and Prejudice, it's so iconic. And people always talk about that moment of him, like, emerging out of the lake. So much so that they've, you know, put a figure of him uh, 
in the lake. I can't remember which house it's at. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, they have. And then they made a cake of him not too long ago. Um, but people talk about that all the time. And then the writer, Andrew Davies, um, he's gone back and said that originally he wanted that scene to be where he was uh, swimming naked. And of course, he couldn't do that. He couldn't have that because it's it's Pride and Prejudice, right? But he, he kind of wanted that scandalous type of thing where you know, Elizabeth came upon him and he was swimming, you know, and ooh, like th- this bit of like sexual moment with him that she wouldn't, That's it's not really sexual, but it's like, it's the act of seeing him come out like that without any clothes on or, or without a top on or whatever. Which, and that's really interesting that you say that because that's completely throwing the trope on its, he- on its head. Usually it's the woman, like the man will come across the the secret lake in the forest or through the like behind the waterfall or whatever it is and there's this woman in the water with a hair flowing down her back so like i think that's really funny i don't know what it is about regency stuff that they've done that several times so sanditon they did it where um she comes upon him and he was I think basically Andrew Davies also wrote Sanditon. And so I think what he couldn't put in Pride and Prejudice now that we're in, you know, it came out in, I think, 2019, he decided, well, I'm going to put it in there now. And you see his bare bottom. And then in um, Becoming Jane, the same happens with James McAvoy. You see him coming out of the water and his bare bottom. And then in Emma, I think you see his bare butt as well in Emma. And so for, I don't remember, but yeah, for whatever sounds, reason, yeah. it's a it's a thing that they that they do with the men, I guess. I don't I don't really know why. But but anyways, yeah, back back to the spoon looking thing. I just think that's kind of a similar type of thing that rather than just being like, oh, we, we might we might tease him being in in a moment where he he would come off as being sexy. They put it right there in front of you. He's licking the spoon to where she's just like looking at him like oh my so I, I just think that's funny that they use this in a very overt way rather than kind of hiding it so i think that's interesting as well we won't spend too much longer talking about this I promise but i think it's it's probably a genre thing you know they know that these kinds of films have got a majority female audience and so they're, they're putting in like the eye candy for them i guess whereas other genres that are more stereotypically male focused for the audience have got the the women in these scenes and situations instead i think it would be interesting to see like a a chart comparing the two i I don't think i'm going to go through and do that research myself but if it's out there maybe we we could find it yeah i i i get what you're saying and i i agree with you yeah yeah another ball daphne is dancing with a bunch of different suitors all of whom are so boring and not to be mean but none of them even compare in looks to the Duke. So why would she even entertain time with these men? Uh, Lady Bridgerton and Lady Danvers are certain that the Duke and Daphne are a love match and that a proposal will come soon, but neither of them have any idea of the pact in which the two of them have entered. So all of a sudden, however, the queen and her nephew, the prince, come through the ballroom. Immediately, the queen leads Prince Friedrich straight to Daphne to introduce the two of them. The queen calls her this season's diamond. He kisses her hand and she laughs with a loud snort. This is all about an inside joke between Daphne and the Duke. We can see now that the two have gotten a lot more comfortable with one another and now have a jokey back and forth friendship. 
It also shows that she's not in the least focused on the prince, oh girl. So one of the things I'm confused about in this series is this kind of unwarranted attention on Daphne from the queen. Like, yes, it has been established that the queen finds her the most beautiful girl of the season, the most beautiful girl in the land. But why is she so fixed on the idea of Daphne being with the prince? What is it about Daphne that she likes so much that she would want Daphne with such a high ranking family member? From a storytelling point of view, I don't feel like we're really given an answer that makes much sense other than Daphne just happens to be beautiful. Like Daphne could be dumb and beautiful or snobby and beautiful or impulsive and beautiful or gossipy and beautiful. Like it it doesn't mean that she would make a good wife for the Duke, especially not kind of in an mean efficient. the prince. The prince, sorry. <laughs> good wife for the prince, especially not in like a an official role. Like it it just her being beautiful doesn't mean that she would fulfill that role well. So what is it that the queen sees about her that she favors her so much other than her looks? I wish we had a bit of a relationship between the queen and Daphne to make us see this favoring in more detail. But it seems like the queen interacts more with her sister Eloise uh, like later on in the in the season than she does Daphne. So it just doesn't really make any sense to me. I'm not like against it. It just... We don't really see the reason why. I mean, we kind of got a hint of it. And I think it's, she's fixed it. The queen is fixated on being right. She announced that Daphne uh, is the prettiest girl of the season. She doesn't want to be wrong. Because if you remember, Lady Whistledown says in, in her um, paper that the queen might be wrong. And even in this episode, there's another hint that, you know, the queen might be wrong. And there's all these kind of the gossip and the rumors that the queen's got it wrong. And she basically, she just doesn't want that. Um, so I, I, yeah, I mean, that's the sense I got, but I totally get what you're saying. It does, it does seem a bit strange in a way. Well, because so much, so much of the plot rides on that, right? Of like Daphne being the jewel of the season. And yeah. so if it wasn't such a big plot point, then I, I wouldn't care. I'd just be like, oh, that's kind of weird. I mean, I get it, but it's weird. Yeah. But because it's such a big plot point, I'm like, I just don't understand what the big deal is. So... However, um, just to kind of expand on that a little bit, let's talk about the prince. Okay, so we can assume that the historical prince that this is based on was Prince Friedrich Wilhelm Ludwig of Prussia. Um, sorry, my pronunciation is horrible there. And that was 1794 to 1863 that he was alive. So side note, Prussia, not to be confused with modern-day Russia, was a powerful German kingdom and eventually state that effectively shaped modern-day Germany. Founded in 1525, it existed until 1932, and legally until 1947, when it was dissolved by Allied decree. So Prince Friedrich, or Frederick, was a general of the Royal Cavalry and a division commander, though this is mostly after 1820, so after the, the period of the show. He was, amongst other things, a Knight of the Black Eagle, which is the most metal name ever, and it's the highest chivalric order in the Kingdom of Prussia, or was. So, as a prince, Friedrich was obviously royalty. His father was a second son of the Prussian king, Friedrich William II, who, by the by, was responsible for the building of the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, which I'm sure many of you have heard of before. This means that he was quite far away from the throne in reality, being the son of the second son of the current king. In terms of his duties, it would have mostly been related to the military command that he had, 
Prussia was a very strong military state, and at least it was most of the time, okay? His grandfather, the, the, the king at this time period, was apparently not a brilliant king in that regard. But Friedrich was a lover of the arts and an artist. He enjoyed the Middle Ages and, brought, and bought a castle to live in, which is pretty nice. Not many people get to do that, right? Also, before he married his wife, Princess Louise of Anhalt-Bernberg, again, apologies for pronunciation here, Princess Charlotte of Wales, the only child of the eventual King George IV, and remember at this time period it's King George III, was interested in him, but after several meetings he suddenly ups and marries Louise instead. We can only assume that there was some kind of, um, maybe a love match, then they're apparently very well equated, they're both artists, um, and they kind of live together quite well for the rest, uh, well, the majority of the rest of their lives as far as I can tell. So, as far as Daphne goes, marrying a prince would have been a great boon to her and her family, propelling her into the royalty. She would have had to have moved to Prussia though, and she'd have basically become German. Today that's not so terrible, but in the 1800s that would have been a massive undertaking. So when you're talking about why the Queen would want Daphne as a match for a prince when she doesn't know what she would have been like in that role, maybe in reality there isn't that much to it. Because he's such he is a prince, obviously, he's royalty, he's directly connected to the, the royal family in, in Prussia, but there's no it's not the same as being the son of the king. So he's not really indirect like immediate line to the throne yeah. so yeah maybe you know, maybe a good match he, uh, the real um prince Friedrich, like i said he basically did art things in his life and was a military commander well i was hoping he'd be a little bit more interesting but cool thank you not everybody gets to be interesting <laughs> <laughs> So it's late at night, and opera singer and former mistress to Anthony Bridgerton, Sienna Rosa, Rosso? Rosso. Rosso. comes to visit the modiste, owned by a Madame Delacroix. The two are friends and are complaining about those in high society over a glass of wine. Madame Delacroix reminds Sienna that the two of them make their own way in the world, and that's something to be proud of. Sienna, however, wants to find another gentleman to keep her, one that does not have a needy mother or sisters. Cut to Anthony and Simon gambling in a men's event. Sienna enters, and it's clear that she's considering Simon, much to the horror of Anthony. Sienna invites Simon to her next opera singing performance and to see her afterwards. He agrees. So I want to cover this in another episode, but I just want to point out how different we see entertainers today than they did back then. For us, actors and singers are some of the like top tier of society in the Western world. Though they're not royalty, they're seen as the elite, really. And it is them that we know most about, uh, even above the majority of politicians, multi-billionaires, and even some royalty, depending on the country of where they're from. So there are plenty of people who will know who Kim Kardashian is, but will have no idea who Prince Philip is, for example. A lot of people are going to know who the Queen is, obviously, but they're going to know who Julia Roberts is before they'll know who Zara Tyndall or Princess Anne is, which is just not the case in the Regency period. Here, Sienna being an opera singer is a big no-no for Anthony because she has no standing in society. 
Today, an elite performer marrying nobility isn't seen as such a scandalous thing. And in some ways, it can be welcomed because they're both in high society. But in the Regency era, it's definitely frowned upon and could possibly make someone lose their inheritance. You can really feel for Sienna here, who has had a hard time with her position, but is trying hard to reject Anthony so she can find a situation that can support her um, where she doesn't have to worry. Yeah, totally. That, and it's really interesting because with the rise of modern technology, we no longer have to rely on like these media outlets for, for all of our information. You know, even back World War II era, the 50s, you relied on, for example, the BBC to tell you anything about anyone. Whereas now, for the most part, you can you can do it directly, quote unquote, via social media. And so people feel like you've got real connections to these celebrities who live fascinating lives that, you know, let's face it, most people want that life. Most people see somebody in a fancy car, like going to all these parties and stuff, and they go, I want that. So for the most part, the existing royalty aren't on Twitter. You know, we don't we don't really know who they are, and they I I would say intentionally stay away from social media so that they're kind of untouchable still in Buckingham, Windsor, Balmoral Castle. I mean, they have Instagrams, but it's definitely curated, 100%. Right. Well, I know, but yeah, so like, let's not go into it, but they, you know, they, they're not on Twitter. You don't have that direct connection to right, the Right, where they're talking personally exactly. to you. Yeah. Because Instagram, it's always curated, even with even with other people, right? Right. Whereas Twitter is just supposed to be unfiltered thought. So I know that other monarchs around uh, Europe in particular are way more modern and quote-unquote in touch with society, but the British royals still hold to those traditions in a lot of ways and, and kind of staying back most of them anyway. Let's not name any names. <laughs> We're not going to go into that. Let's not. So Anthony and Daphne can't sleep. The two of them decide to go down to the kitchen to make something to drink, um, specifically warm milk. But when they get down there, neither of them know how to operate the oven. <laughs> Privilege. The two of them get to chatting, and Daphne asks her brother why Simon is so opposed to marriage. Yet again, Anthony tells her what he knows about Simon, and what he can tell her is that Simon grew up quite differently than they did. He didn't have a mother, he didn't really know his father, and he had no family, and he doesn't speak, to, speak of them to this day. He prefers to be alone. And this still leaves more questions than, than it provides answers about Simon for poor Daphne. The prince is making his social rounds, meeting with many thirsty women, all decked out in their fineries, hoping to catch his attention. Today, they're looking through Somerset House, the new art gallery that's been installed there. Everyone who is anyone, aka everyone that we know of in this show, is at this gallery opening. All of the Featheringtons, the Bridgertons, and even Marina, who has now been let out of the house in order to find a husband, ASAP. Lady Featherington brings Marina in front of a super old dude in order to get her married off, and poor girl, Penelope comes up and tries to help her. The two are able to drive the old guy away, much to Lady Featherington's dismay. The prince comes up to Daphne, telling her that the art isn't the only beautiful thing on display at present, which is very smooth. But she, however, is distracted by the Duke walking past in the background and doesn't really want to pay attention to what the Prince is saying. So she quickly shoes him off to find the gaggle of ladies that are wanting his attention. Daphne goes to find Simon in another room, kind of on their own, by the way. And the two have a private conversation about their public perception, as written by Lady Whistledown in her paper. 
Daphne exclaims that she's enjoying fooling Lady Whistledown, and she says we have her convinced that we are utterly mad An attention-seeking debutante, the two share a binding has moment over a piece of art that was Simon's mother's favourite. Hallelujah, this we are finally at a social right event that is the other room, not and they go to find a out what the noise was. As beautiful as they are, so many of them take away from the specialness of them. Like, it makes it seem like they happen every night. Um, this just seems like a fun event, though. I would love nothing more than to put on my best Regency promenading gown and walk through the halls of an art gallery. Nowadays, it feels like we're all just ushered into art galleries like cows. They hand you those awful headsets that like 50 other people have put on their ears before you. And there's like loud tourists and jeans and Crocs. I'm not trying to throw my own people under the bus, but you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> and then school groups of kids that are screaming and not really paying attention. And so I would love to actually tour an art gallery like this where I feel like I'm in an elegant gown. The art is elegant. It's like this peaceful moment out of a movie. I guess though, right now, I would just like going through an art gallery at all. So I guess you just have to be thankful for what you can get. But I do miss art galleries and museums so much. Yeah. So I just want to briefly mention before we kind of go on to the gallery, I love the scene where Daphne and Anthony are attempting to make warm milk because it's it's so so much privileges in that scene, but it's really funny as well. It bugs me in a way that Daphne leaves the milk out at the end. It, it, it's in keeping with the character. They know nothing about an oven, so why would they care about milk being kept out? But some poor servant or cook is going to kind of wake up and come in the kitchen in the morning and go, oh no, the milk's been left out. I think in some ways, though, this is a cute scene because... There's a lot of these period dramas where, you know, the the servants are just floating people that don't really have anything else to do or serve anything else in the plot other than to be servants. And here it's definitely the same. But I will say that this this is a sign of showing their privilege and showing like these people don't know how to do anything practical because they ne they've never had to. And so mm -hmm. a lot of times we don't see those moments in other period dramas. We just see like these fabulous people moving around in ballrooms and going here and there. And so you don't really see that like, oh, like maybe they have no idea how to wash clothes. And <laughs> right, so right. it, it and is obviously, interesting. Th this show isn't focused on the servants kind no. of at all. There's a couple of scenes or moments with them in it, obviously. But this yeah, isn't Downton Abbey. It's not Downton Abbey. No. So the gallery scene is great. Because I really love those kinds of art galleries where you know all the paintings going all the way across the walls and stuff. I think the, my favorite that we visited was the Art Institute of Chicago. There was like loads of really cool things on display there. I think we saw the Terracotta Army there when mm -hmm. when we were there. Um, this was quite a few years ago now. Um, but it you know that place was so huge compared to most of the other um art galleries that i've been to or museums that it was just really interesting and there's a lot of um georgian artwork in yeah in the uh, art institute of chicago so was that also the one where we saw the van gogh display because they had it set maybe, up like like maybe, his room maybe that could have been it I was, get mixed it, up with what we've seen because we've just been sitting here in this living room I for know. days on end and everything in the past has mixed together and it was like everything was wonderful before we went to all these cool places and now we stare at this one room. So I don't remember if that's where we saw that, but it could have been. I mean, it, it was such a big, a big place anyway. And we did so much in that day that it 
could have been a different place, but it also could have been the same place. Anywho. You know what, though? The next time we go to an art gallery, I'm just going to put on a Regency dress and I'm just going to float through the rooms and I'm going to ignore the screaming children, which they need to learn. So I understand they need to be there, but I'm just going to float through in my Regency gown and I'm just going to pretend like the Duke's in another room and you, you can pretend to be my Duke. You can be in another room and can meet up and be like, ooh, this piece of art is so pretty. What does it mean? Yeah, do sure. Do you want to do that with me? Mm-hmm, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, another reason that I like this gallery scene, uh, it's the start of Benedict's subplot, uh, which is quite an amusing one. Um, this The start of this subplot is quite amusing, but also I think it's that's a nice thing that we see for that character throughout the series, so really cool to see. So Daphne is a little dismissive of the prince, bless him. He's trying so hard, and, and she's speaking uh, to the Duke about his mother's favorite painting. And I can't help but think that she's actually being... Manipulative is a strong word for it, but she kind of is in a way because her brother told her the night before, or, you know, presumably the night before, that the Duke enjoys being alone. So here she is telling the Duke that she finds inordinate pleasure at being alone, serene in the countryside, intimate, she says. Mmm, indeed, Miss Bridgerton. I didn't even think about that, but I think that's... That's a thing that can happen. And I'll be honest with you. I remember being in high school and knowing some girls that would be like, I just love superhero films. And when we were in a group with other guys, they would talk about superhero films, you know, till kingdom come. And then we'd be alone and they'd be like, I'm not really into it. It's just like I wanted to impress him or whatever. And so you're right. This may be a bit of a manipulative tactic because who knows if she really does like this piece of art or not, but she said it because it's a piece of art that his mom likes. And so she's like, I'm going to pretend to connect with this one way or another, and then it's going to connect us. So she's but, smart. Okay. But to be fair, earlier on when she's dancing with those boring men, one of them, I don't remember which one, she does say to him, I prefer the country. Which do you prefer? And he goes, I've never really thought about it because he's all vapid and, an idiot <laughs> but but so like maybe maybe she's being genuine at the same she could time. be she 100 percent could be but she also could be kind of playing the cards that she has Yo, right yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah alongside of like oh that's a pretty painting but also how can i make us connect in this moment yeah so. maybe and maybe we're just looking into it too much maybe we are but that's our job so at the opera house after sienna's performance we see that the duke has never shown up Thank goodness, loyalty to Daphne. He's not as tempted by Sienna as we once thought. The next morning, Lady Whistledown's paper has been circulated yet again. And now the prince has caught wind that Daphne's heart has already been taken by the Duke, even though his aunt would rather him go after Daphne than any other lady of the season. At breakfast, the queen tells the prince, you are a prince, charm her. We cut to a scene of Lady Featherington bringing Marina to a rough area of London to teach her a lesson. If she doesn't get married soon, this will be the future that she's going to have. Lady Featherington tries to tell her. There are people working out in the streets, cleaning laundry, shoeing horses, throwing out waste, all the typical poor people tropes from period dramas. It looks rough. Everything is dark. The people are wearing, aren't wearing bright colors as the upper class do. It's all monochrome costumes and disheveled hair. Marina is having none of this. She's first of all not put off by the poor, hardworking people. 
But also, she is convinced that her lover will come back and take care of her, though there's no evidence for this. And just before we move on to the, the other things here, when she tells Lady Featherington that, that's actually the first time that she says that to her. Mm. And, you know, she says, well, I actually, I have someone who loves me and he he's just off fighting. But, you know, she doesn't believe her and she goes on about how men, how men are horrible. To be fair, when I first watched this the first time through, I didn't really believe her either. Bless her. I do think as manipulative as Lady Featherington is, like, I don't think she's a dumb woman. And I think that Marina is a bit in the clouds about if he's coming back or not. I think I think so, because there's no she has no evidence that he's going to and her being pregnant it does it does pose a risk for her unfortunately so i think i think like she can be hopeful all she wants and still have like a practicality in her mind about like how to deal with it at the same time i feel like i would do both at the same time i would be like well hopefully he's going to get back to me because i think he loves me and i can also be like well how can i think of my future and take care of myself at the same time i mean interesting but i i do think this is kind of like a symptom of your pessimistic nature. <laughs> Ironically, for someone who loves I these kinds of things. I think this is me being a strong woman because we women have to support ourselves loads. Yeah. And so I think as a responsible young woman, she should be thinking, you know what? I know he loves me. I've got confidence in that. But in the odd case that he doesn't or he doesn't come back, I'm going to figure out a situation for myself and my baby. And I'm going to be a bit adult about it because I am pregnant. So, like, you can do yeah, those but, two okay, things but, at once. I mean, I, I guess I, I see I see exactly what you're saying, but it's still she's being she's hopeful, but it's I not know, even she's it's in not love. Even, yeah, and it's not even just hopeful. It's just she is secure in the knowledge that Sir George loves her, and I don't I don't see that as a bad thing. It's not, but in this day and age, when marriage is almost everything. She can be secure in the knowledge that he loves her and yet he still may not marry her because he might have pressure from his parents or whatever. And he could have told her a myriad of things and it still be different from the situation that he has with his parents who then will say, no, we'll disinherit you or whatever. So I get her all okay, being fine. like in love. I, I but totally, do you I agree okay. that that makes sense. Thank you. I love you. Yeah. <laughs> love you too. <laughs> so... This scene is hilarious to me because we've gone three episodes with everything being super bright, like over the top colors on the houses, like vine, pretty colorful vines on the houses. The costumes are vibrant, multicolored, the rooms, the carriages, the weather, everything bright, bright, bright. All of these balls and promenading and such, everybody is just out in the sunlight constantly, which is just typical British weather. Mm-hmm. Um, if I saw that much sunlight in one summer in the UK, I think I'd faint. Like, <laughs> it's raining here again. Like, it's raining all the time. So okay, I just, but it's, it's January. Okay, yeah, that's true. But I, I just think it's so funny that we don't really see any dreary days on the show. I think we see... The only other one that we see, um, bar a brief downpour in one of the later episodes, is, of course, of course, where these poor people are. So... One of our friends, thank you so much for pointing that out. She messaged me about it and she was like, did you notice that the only scene where everything is kind of like dark weather wise is where all the poor people are? Um, so 
this is the only place in the series that we really see the very typical downcast, gloomy British weather where all these people are washing their laundry and and such. So I just think that's really hysterical. Um, This small scene with these commoners, I'm not going to say it's over the top, but it's like they've squished every working class person in this tiny section of London. There's a kid on a mattress begging for food with dirt all over his face. There's even a man with a stick full of rats on it. This scene is what, like a minute long, and we've just shoved every poor 19th century working class London cliche that we can in this one minute, even pulling out the rats on the sticks. And I think that's funny. I mean, yeah. I mean, not only do they make the commoners live in a dirty and grimy place, that they literally color grade the footage to be colder with a blue tone instead of the orange and yellow the warmer tones we see on the rest I of the series i didn't even notice that oh yeah no it's it's a marked difference it really is but you're right i never really noticed this the first time through so it's it's good that it's been pointed out and yeah what 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 is it with the the rats on a stick i mean I they're basically know. implying that these people are so poor that they catch the rats and eat them I don't, I mean, whatever. Um, and yeah, it's overcast in this scene. This is the one scene in this entire episode that's overcast. If you look at the sky, it's completely gray in this scene, whereas yeah. no other scene is. So completely cloud covered, um, but it isn't elsewhere in London at the exact same time of day where our nobility live. So absolutely hilarious. And well, I mean, hilarious in a ironic horrible way yeah like it's, it's it's terrible but it's just funny that that's the way that they've written this i feel like this is the opposite of a charles dickens novel if you read or watch nicholas nickleby the majority of it is these gloomy settings streets of london filled with poor people trading uh and pickpocketers coffins are being sold on the side of the street and there's like one nice scene in a big house in nicholas nickleby maybe a few garden shots um, whereas this is the opposite. There's like an overload of the upper class, perfect people with their perfect houses. Even the servants look super well dressed, I think, for for the time. Um, and 30 seconds of poor people and they're all bad and pathetic and it's cold and rainy on them all the time and their life is horrible. So this is just a perfect example of what I think Americans think is Georgian England. 30 seconds of poor people to remind us how fortunate we are. And then the rest is just tons of balls and long dresses. So I just think it's funny. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't really have much else to say here that we haven't already said, other than this is what most people assume that like Victorian era mm. England yeah, was yeah, like. Yeah. And it's such an expectation that I didn't even notice it the first time around. It's a convention of, of the genre as a whole, right? So it's not great, but we have these visual codes for a reason. It's shorthand, so we can't be too grumpy at the director for it. It's quick and it easily gets the point across to the viewer that this is what we're looking slash dealing with. So it's not it's not great. It's kind of lazy, but it means that we don't have to spend much longer on this scene. It's just to prove this small point to Marina. Exactly. Which, you know, that's not great. You know, we're, if we're looking at this from a writing point of view, maybe this could have been done in a better way. It's It's very heavy handed, but it shows us a little bit of the character of... Lady Featherington. It shows us some of the character of Marina, how she's hopeful and still uh, is looking for Sir George and stuff. It could have been done in a slightly better way. They didn't have much time to show it. So because they didn't have much time, they use these shorthand. And I understand it. I don't necessarily agree with it. 
<laughs> it just shows that clouds only come over the poor people. Um, which, you know, if any of you have ever visited the UK, you'll know how, how much of a lie that is. These These characters would be promenading through the streets of London with umbrellas and um coats on and i mean even or they just wouldn't have been doing it for the majority of the year so i don't know it's it's funny really because we don't get that much sun no and again i also think it's just hilarious how stark a difference is of the color grading from one scene to the next it's like bam here are some blues and then bam here are yellows go back and watch this this scene and you'll see exactly what i'm talking about it's really just in your face. So we have more promenading with Daphne and Simon. Daphne's questioning what makes a good marriage. And Simon kind of tells her that it is both physical and intangible, which she doesn't really get. He doesn't think that he's the one who should tell her about these scandalous things in marriage, though, and it would be wrong for a suitor to discuss such things with a lady. Daphne, however, reminds him that he's not really a suitor, and so she pushes him to tell her about these private things between a man and a woman, because nobody else will. So Simon tells Daphne that what happens to a man and wife is a continuation of what happens at night, when a person is alone. Ooh. Now, the whole time, Daphne is looking mystified, but kind of intrigued. And she, she just doesn't really get it. But on the ride home, Lady Danvers hits Simon on the knee with her cane and pressures him about Daphne. What are his intentions? What's taking him so long to propose? And we're kind of thinking the same thing. She warns him that Daphne has caught the eye of Prince Friedrich, but she's too caught up in the Duke's charms that she might miss this chance. And Lady Danvers basically tells Simon that he better not ruin her chances to be a princess if he has no desire to take it further with her. So this scene was very saucy. It's the most eloquent way someone has explained doing things with oneself <laughs> without being crude that I've ever seen before. I don't know how to say that in a nice way, but it's the most eloquent way I've ever heard someone describe that to someone who doesn't know what it is. He explains it ever so delicately. Um, I'm definitely uncomfortable, to be honest, but it is a scene that shows us that they are crossing some boundaries a bit as a couple. Um, and you have to admit it now. You have to admit it at this point, he's thought about Daphne and some nefarious things that the two of them could get up to. Because you denied it last episode. You said, no, you didn't think about her like that. What? You did. Did I? You did. You said, oh, no, he's not thought about her in that way whatsoever. And I was like, yes, he has. Are you has. sure I said that? Our listeners know that you said that. We had a debate about that where I was like, he definitely has thought about her in like a couple way. And like, he <laughs> likes her at this point. We know he wants her at this point. And you're like, no, not yet. Not yet. Wait, you no, have to agree at this point. He does. So hold on, hold on. Whilst I, I think I remember what you're talking about. I don't think that he's thought of her as a wife, but he's definitely thought about. Oh, so just an object. Oh, okay. He said it himself. He said it himself. You're the worst. He said all he needed was five minutes alone with her in a room. over you now. We're not going to talk about this. My mother told me not to. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on, Eloise and her brother Benedict are sneaking a cheeky smoke outside their house late at night on a pair of swings. He complains that he is not happy with his art, to which she replies, go and hire an art master or get a young woman to act impressed. <laughs> If you desire the sun and moon, all you have to do is go out and shoot at the sky. Some of us cannot. 
Eloise makes the point that though Lady Whistledown has a huge following, she still has to hide away and publish under a false name because she is a woman. Eloise points out to her brother that he has the world at his fingertips, unlike most women. She pushes him to be bold so she can live vicariously through him. Benedict suggests that perhaps Eloise is Lady Whistledown. It's the first suggestion that we've had of someone being the infamous writer, but she scoffs at this, however. She says if she were, she wouldn't admit it. Late at night, we see Daphne is spending time alone, if you know what we mean. She is picturing the Duke, which means that she is definitely thinking about him in a romantic way. We quickly cut to a scene with her playing the end of a song on the piano to which her mother says, you finished, how lovely. These cuts to these types of comments are so clever and it makes you chuckle slightly. So I love this scene between Eloise and her brother. As much as this show is about these sexy, steamy scenes, there are also these traces of moments that make you think about life and inequality. A lot of people have been saying this is just a dreamy romp, and there is certainly a large amount of that, but there's also these moments with other characters where they ponder on their station in society and the limitations that they have on their lives compared to other people. Eloise has recognized the difference between herself and her brother, where perhaps he's got a bit of a wall up about it and he doesn't realize how easy he's got it in terms of opportunities in his life. He's complaining about his art and yet she sees all the ways that he could change that. And all he has to do is go out and get an art instructor if needs be or work on it a bit more. Whereas for her, that would be so much more difficult and perhaps a waste of time in the long run for her. I mean, I know women did artwork and needlework and that sort of thing, but in the long run, a lot of that stuff was just to, to attract a husband in some instances. So I understand what she's saying here. You know, if, if he's complaining about that he wants his art to be the best of the best, well, all he has to do is go hire somebody. She would have to ask permission to do something like that. So she mentions Lady Whistledown needing to hide her real name, which was not uncommon during this time period. When Jane Austen first published Sense and Sensibility, her first novel, she published under the name A Lady. Then her subsequent books were published using From the Author of Sense and Sensibility or From the Author of Pride and Prejudice. As far as we know, none of the first editions has her name on them. It was only after her death that her brother had Northanger Abbey and Persuasion published under her name. So she never actually saw her own name printed on her novels, which I had no idea. Like I, I was looking that up the other day and I mean, I guess I assumed I knew that that her first novels were published under A Lady. Like I, I, I knew that. And I think in the back of my head, I knew that the first copies didn't really have her name on them for some reason, but it never, never occur- occurred. It to never you. occurred to me that this woman who spent all this time writing never saw her name published on the front of a book. Yeah. And that's yeah. just so, it's so sad to me that she never actually had her own name printed on her novels for her to see and hold. It's just really sad in my eyes. It was also this way for um, some later female writers such as George Eliot or the Brontes. So George Eliot or Mary Ann Evans wrote novels in the 1860s and decided to write under a man's name because although women were publishing under their own names, she wanted her work to not be judged like other women's for just being kind of fluff romances, which I think is a thing that still happens to female writers today. Um, The same thing goes for the Brontes, who use their names Courier, Ellis, and Acton Bell, rather than Charlotte, Emily, and Anne. 
So Jane Eyre was originally published under the name Courier Bell rather than Charlotte Bronte because some of the subjects explored in Jane Eyre, such as violence, lunacy, and sexual passion, were seen as unladylike at the time. So there were all these different reasons why women couldn't just simply publish with the name that they wanted to, even in situations where women had published under their own names before. There was a lot of prejudice about what a woman should write, and therefore there were limitations to women who wanted to write wherever, whatever they wanted to write. So for Lady Whistledown, that anonymity is probably to just protect her from people coming after her more than anything else. But like Eloise says, the fact that she has to hide at all as a woman shows the difference between the freedoms that she has compared to that of men. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really ironic, though, that when the novel was first, you know, created as a form of literature, it was seen as a feminine pursuit, unworthy of the poetry that men were capable of producing. I would go so far as to say that that has completely switched. And definitely by the, you know, the 20th century, the novel became a male pursuit, the, you know, the Hemingway stereotype. And then the poetry became a feminine pursuit. You know, when when I was younger, there were definitely times where people would make jokes about, I'll go and make poetry because it was feminine. And um, I've never thought about that, but yeah, I know what you mean. Um, so the novel as a form has an interesting history. And it's not something that I'll go too far into because honestly, it's not my true area of expertise at all. And I don't want to get it wrong. But of course, uh, this is also a very European-centered idea of what the novel is. Globally, there's still uh, a lot of debate over this, of course, but the tale of Genji, written by a Murasaki Shikabu, or Lady Murasaki, is sometimes considered to be the world's first novel. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. The first science fiction novel, and as we've said, that's one of my two favourite genres, was written by Mary Shelley in 1818, Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, its full title. Um, there is some debate over that as well. Frankenstein, whether or not it's science fiction, I think it's more correctly called a, a gothic novel. But a lot of people do say it's it's the precursor to science fiction. Interesting. So women always have been and always will be vastly important to literature. So it's particularly sad when we go through these periods of time when female novelists are looked down upon or denigrated, which happens all too often for, for my tastes. Mm. I think it's, it's very interesting that we kind of have this anonymous writer who, as we've kind of mentioned before, it, it's more of a plot device than anything. Yeah. You know, yeah. For, for the writers of the show, for, for this story, it makes a lot of sense to have this character, this device to be able to move the action forward. But I think it does raise these really interesting conversations about what men and women were allowed to do and that kind of thing. And I know this is such like a, a convoluted topic that we don't have time to go into. Yeah. But there are certain times in history when these things just like flop where, you know, women are writing novels and they're, they're writing these amazing things that are so popular. And then they pretend to be men because otherwise they wouldn't get sold. But then at the same time, when the novels first used as a form people are like oh only only women write novels because they can't do the proper poetry and it's like what yeah it is frustrating yeah i think one of the one of the cool things is it seems like every birthday and every christmas you've got me a book as a staple gift which has been so lovely i've gotten so many books but one of the books that i got and how many have you read I've read a couple of them. A couple. I do. I like all of them. But you got me a book by, 
I think it's Monica Dickens. And what was the publisher that you got it from? Uh, so this is uh, a publishing company, I think in London, Persephone Books. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought it was a really interesting concept. But as a publisher, they've decided that they are only going to carry novels written by women. And they specifically say that it, it's for women. But what they also do, it's a really interesting thing, is that they publish them all in the same grey cover. So that the idea is along the, the spine, it has like a very nicely printed title in like italics, Times New Roman kind of thing. It looks looks quite nice. But the, the idea is that anybody who has read uh, one of these grey books from Persephone Books will be able to pick up any other of their books, read it and enjoy it. Well, because it's it's more about the writers than it is yes. the covers, which I think is such a neat idea. The book that you got me, I don't even think you knew, but it was written by Charles Dickens' granddaughter. I did know that book. Okay. I, I didn't know anything else. That's that's the only reason I picked it, because I recognized the name. I had no idea she wrote. And when I went on the website for the publisher, there was all these different female writers that I'd never even heard of before. And I think that's, that's the point. They're wanting to publish novels and stories by women that never got the platform that they should have yeah. had in their own lifetime. It's such a great concept. If I'm not mistaken, I mentioned George Eliot earlier. They published George Eliot under her real name, Marianne Evans. So I think that's really cool. You know, when I when I read the notes um, before we recorded and you put that fact in there, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Did you not know that George Eliot was a woman? No. Wow. No. Um, but you know, as we as we discussed, was it last episode? My um, education in literature was quite a bit different than yours, so maybe that's to blame, or maybe it's just the fact. You're that British, though. That is like one of the quintessential British writers, and I know who that is, and you don't. I can't. I can't. Who have I married? Like I said, I like science fiction and fantasy. <laughs> I could ask you the same thing about some of my favorite authors, and you would not have a clue. Thank goodness. So Daphne meets up with Simon again outside of the ice cream shop, but this time he doesn't really want to converse so freely like they have before, and he goes back to calling her Miss Bridgerton. He's breaking up their situationship. He tells her that she's got enough suitors now, and he has kept the meddling mothers at bay. He's done his duty, and now he's done. So he wants the ruse to end. Now that she's got the attention of the prince, he's perfect for her. She should go off and, and focus on him. She tells him that she thought that they were friends. To which he tells her that they were never friends. She was simply a diversion and a convenience, which is a little bit harsh. He tells her that he thinks she will be very happy with the prince, but she is stunned and hurt. He heads back home, where he immediately tells his servants to pack everything up. They're heading out again, getting away from England. He doesn't want to stay here, it's affecting him too much, and he basically shouts at them to hurry things up. Speaking of situationships, Anthony is being a classic idiot and shows up to the opera where Sienna has just performed. This is the Regency version of a booty call. And Sienna even calls him out on it. She says, what perchance is the Viscount Bridgerton seeking to escape from tonight? As cute as he is, she's not dumb and knows that he's only there to escape what's, ha what's happening in his own life, whether that's, you know, a ball or an event that he doesn't want to go to, as so many booty calls can be. She tells him that she's not just sitting around waiting for him. She has her own stuff going on. So, you know, go Sienna. She tells him that she no longer wants to be his woman, that he only loves in the shadows and resists his advances. 
Over at the Featheringtons, Penelope has found out that Marina has finally received a letter from Sir George, who's been fighting in Spain. The letter, however, says that he has no intention of marrying Marina or supporting her. He pretends that there is nothing between them and that he wants nothing more to do with her and her situation. After Marina reads the letter and cries out, however, we see that Lady Featherington has forged this letter with her lady's maid and Marina doesn't know this, it's absolutely tearing her apart. Lady Featherington, however, thinks that she's done what is best, and she needs to know what men are truly like. These scenes are full of just disappointing men. I've got to be honest. Here we have these three different scenes of women in situationships, or semi-relationships without the commitment, that look as if they've got no hope of being permanent. I think it's insane that you could literally pick up these women for the most part and transport them here and their situations would still be the same. With Marina, it seems as if she's been ghosted over the fact that she's pregnant and the father doesn't want to take responsibility, which is absolutely still a thing that happens today. For Daphne, if she were alive today and maybe she had been faking a relationship as some sort of Instagram influencer or something to gain more followers, but then the guy decides he doesn't want to play along anymore and gets out of the, out of the situation without any sort of commitment or a friendship. With Sienna, this is the only one that doesn't apply as much anymore. We can see with relationships such as Meghan and Harry, who is a duke, that it is now acceptable for nobility to marry a commoner. And with someone like Megan, who was in a way a type of performer, as Sienna is as well, there are no longer these boundaries that exist today that would keep this type of couple apart. But it doesn't mean that the pressure is still not there or that the pressure doesn't affect these type of couples today. There are still people who do not marry below their station because of pressures of society for them to find people of equal footing. So I just find it so interesting that while things change, like fashion, marriage, technology, and the workplace, with matters of the heart, things like this seem relatively unchanged for so many women. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I do want to touch on something different here, though, the, the forged letter. So... I think I mentioned this in either of the first two episodes, but this is basically a case of Mrs. Featherington, sorry, Lady Featherington, projecting her own unhappiness with her marriage onto other people. That is true. So in this case, it's onto a young woman in her care. And this is something that kind of really gets on my nerves. It, it, I, I don't I don't like it. So she does something that she justifies to herself and, you know, her lady's maid. But I, I just, I think it's awful. So it's manipulative and I don't, I don't enjoy this scene or, or plot point because she says now she's protected. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't think so at all. It, it's not protecting her to, to rip her heart out like that. There, there are other ways like, yes, okay. So she tried talking to her <laughs> by taking her to the grimy poor area of London, but that's that's not the same thing she's this entire time she's treating marina like a child and she's saying i know better than you and again that's projection from her own situation and her own life okay fair enough you know we all use our own experiences to try and educate the people in our care but at the same time she doesn't ever you know sit marina down and have a conversation about it and i guess you know it's for the sake of drama and stuff but this manipulating hey, let's forge a letter and make her think that, you know, the father of her child hates her and stuff. I just, I find that really awful. No, I think you're right. I think 
with Lady Featherington, it is a lot of projection about the fact that her marriage is not going well. There's a lot of secrecy that surrounds her marriage. I do think that she's putting this on Marina. And also because this is a woman that is in competition with her own daughter. So that's another insecurity. This girl is more beautiful than something that is hers, her daughter's. And so like there's just all these different insecurities I think that she has wrapped in the into this same young woman she's willing to kind of go the extra mile. Like when she said earlier, well, she's going to have to figure out that men are bad one way or another. I might as well just kind of help her along with this. And so she kind of justifies her actions in that way. But it it really doesn't help Marina in the long end. And it doesn't really help her get over the guy like either. Well, no, of course. I mean, it's not it's not designed for that at all. It's Lady Featherington. I almost said Danvers. It's Lady Featherington just basically being horrible because she doesn't like marina and then going oh she 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 should know what men are like and like yeah okay maybe maybe she should but but tell her like show her that don't i don't know i just well i i completely forgot about this aspect of it because it is kind of creepy and they don't really do it ever again but at the very beginning when marina first comes to move in with them i even made a comment to you like the dad keeps looking at her weird and I made a comment to you. I was like, oh, no. Uh, okay. Yes. I know where you're going with this. I mean, they never did anything with that. Thank goodness. I was glad. But at the same time, it was no, like but they this- do. So so I, they, they don't take it in that direction that you're probably thinking of, but they take it in another one. And we'll talk about that when it comes up. But remember, there is something. There's a very specific reason that she's there with the Featheringtons. And again, we'll talk about this when it comes up in a later episode. I know. But I, I just mean, when we first come upon them, it's what we think he's doing when he looks at her. Right, exactly. Now, that's the, the director and the writers playing on our expectations. I think they're kind of clever, right? Because, you yeah. know, we do think that, you know, maybe he's got some creepy, nasty thoughts about her. Yeah. Okay, I know, I know, awful. But, like, we'll find out later the the true reasons and stuff. So, yeah, I think it's just, it's another one of those things where they're playing on expectations and they're trying to turn the trope up around. But one way or another, it means that Lady Featherington is looking at him thinking that's what he's doing. Like, one way or Uh, the other. Oh, yeah, they cut to the camera to her looking at him doing that. And she doesn't know why, but, uh, like, that's what she's thinking, right? And so that's an extra layer of reasons why she's decided to do this and decided to kind of go behind Marina's back and really manipulate her life to that of a degree, that high of a degree, which is sad and yeah. Makes yeah. her not a good good person. <laughs> but again, it's it's one of those things where we, we need to have an antagonist and so obviously the Featheringtons fall into that category. Uh, well the majority of them fall into that category pretty well. So another thing that is unchanged throughout the centuries are busybodies, which this show kind of seems to have in an abundance. Over at the dress shop, Violet is stopped by Cressida, the, the woman who fainted in front of the prince, uh, by, by her mother. And she tells Violet how thankful she is that Daphne is distracted by the Duke because now it gives her daughter a chance to be with the prince. Daphne overhears this and decides that she's going to play the part. She's going to go full hog in on this game, as Eloise mentioned earlier, and it seems as if she's going to go after the prince for real now. In the next scene, we see that Anthony is working in his office when Lady Violet comes in to give him a list of women that are eligible, and she tells him time is of the essence. He seems very dismissive of the idea of him marrying any time soon. At the millionth ball of the season, the Duke tells Lady Danvers that he's leaving England again. Like the legend that she is, however, Lady Danvers tells him that he's foolish, obviously. He's dumb. Duh. (laughs) 
Coming down the stairs like Hilary Duff in A Cinderella Story. I wrote that. Yes. I have no idea what that is. Oh my gosh. Daphne is ready to slay, which is in all caps. <laughs> she has her fan waving. She's staring straight at the prince. She's come here to win him and basically screw over the duke. So, you know, good on her. All the while, Simon is looking on as she dances with the prince. The scene heads towards the credits, and we hear Lady Whistledown's commentary once again. She comments on the look of the duke's face as Daphne's dancing with the prince and says, Why settle for a duke when one can have a prince? Amen, amen. And instead, you settle for the commoner. Way! <laughs> In some ways, I've got to agree with Lady Whistle down here. If you've got the attention of a prince, why not go for him? Like, honestly, he's cute. He seems like he's a super nice guy. And come on, he's a prince. But on the other hand, you can see how in love Daphne is with Simon. So she should follow her heart, blah, blah, blah. But I'll be, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest, the older I get, the more I see these kind of shows and movies where the women refuse princes or like the super rich guy for someone else. And I'm like, what on earth are you doing? We're all out of work. All of us millennials have no money. We can't buy houses. And we're all working from home during COVID. Don't be dumb. Go with the prince. Get your coin. <laughs> but I suppose... Wow. <laughs> I love you. Uh -huh. But I suppose in a situation like this, Daphne is spolt for choice. Like, sure, she could be a princess and she could have all the opportunities that that could afford her. However, she'd always have to be on and she'd have loads of duties and would always be judged. She'd always be in the spotlight. So in a way, marrying the Duke is the best of both worlds. Like, she gets the money and the title, but there wouldn't be the same level of pressure for her to be perfect and produce a millionaire's, especially not with Simon. Like, yes, in a normal situation, it would be normal for her to produce an heir, and there would be pressures on her to do that as a duchess, but it still wouldn't be the level that it would be as a princess. There are also just so many more obligations on a princess than presumably a queen one day than there would be on a duchess. Even if she still had the obligations as a duchess, it wouldn't be the same as being a princess. So it's not just about her matching with the top of the top for the sake of it. Daphne finally really needs to think about, is this the life that she wants? Are these duties and responsibilities that come along with being royal something that she wants for the rest of her life? Something that she can cope with and that she really wants? And does she really care about this guy? I don't really think that she's thought about that. And I think clearly at this point, it's just about her spiting the Duke. In modern times, the responsibilities of royalty aren't to be taken lightly. And they're not always what people want for their lives. And that's okay. Back then, you would have had less of a choice what to do with your life once you married royalty. You know, Meghan and Harry, they've been able to make the choice of stepping away from royal duties. Don't laugh at duties. No, no, no. I'm just saying we, were, we, we, we said we weren't going to talk about this. I'm, I'm not going to talk about it in a controversial way. I'm just saying like they, they were allowed to make those decisions. Right. And I do remember like when Kate and William got married, you know, there was all this buzz around the fact of like, she had to decide whether or not she really wanted this life and she had to really love him if that's what she wanted out of her life because it's not easy. And I, th I think that's true. I think like Kate and William really love each other and I think she's made that decision because she really loves him. And so 
for someone like Daphne, she would, I think, have to try extra hard because she doesn't really love the prince. You can tell that. And so if she wants to step into these responsibilities, I think it would be so much harder to have to put a face on and and do all of these different duties (laughs) if you didn't love the person that you were doing it with, if you didn't feel like you were their partner and, and you didn't feel like they were the love of your life and that you were a team doing this together for life. So, I, you know, I think she has to really think about, is this what I want? And do I really care for this person? And I don't think that Daphne is using her head right now. Yeah, no. Um. So first of all, if you said duties like a, a normal person, then it wouldn't sound like duties. <laughs> duties. Um, <laughs> but no, so I, I'm not sure I kind of agree 100% with you here. If... If he were a prince of, like, the firstborn of his monarch, then, you know, for starters, I doubt he'd be in England searching, you know, for a Viscount's daughter or sister or, you know, whatever. Okay, fair. But, you know, in that case, then, yeah, he'd have, like, a load of duties and, like, responsibilities and, in the like, one of those things would be heirs and, you know, a male heir in particular. But for, like, a relatively low-ranking prince, and as we see from history, he had relatively little that he needed to do. Like, it was more of a military career and then his own, like, personal art stuff. So, you know, the real prince, Friedrich, even separated from his wife due to her, quote, chronic nervous disease, and he only visited her on their common birthday. So, so yeah, like, historically, it didn't matter what his wife did, which is really sad. But, um... It, it was probably the same amount of duty um, from from that prince, this, you know, prince of a second, second-born son of, of the king, as the duke. Because in some ways, in this particular case, the duke may have more land and responsibility than that prince did. Because, mm-hmm. because as a prince, you're not always given land so in this particular case we're talking about a a german prince right which is quite different than the the british princes because obviously you know as as we know the the current princes of the british royal family are dukes because the queen has given them some of her duke titles right and so they they do have the lands that go along with them uh, the grandsons as well as her sons. So they, they they have responsibilities in those areas. And as we see a little bit later in the season, Simon does have a lot of those responsibilities for the people that live on his land. But we don't see that for the prince. We don't know if he actually holds land and stuff. We, we presume he does. But anyway, so I mean, basically all of this to say that... I don't necessarily think that she would need to make too much of a different choice between the two men in terms of responsibility. That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I didn't really think about that. Um, That would make sense. But I, I think I think in terms of her being able to say that she's married to a prince, you know, that does make all, oh, the, yeah. all the difference in a title. So I'm sure in some circles that that would be the most important thing ever, even if you know, basically the roles were were very similar. But also don't forget, though, if she married the prince, she'd be carted off to Prussia. And and so it wouldn't matter what all of her peers think. She would she'd be thrust into a different country with a different language. Like, okay, yeah, the prince is speaking English. She would have to learn German. Yeah. Um, And it's an entirely well, not entirely, you know, they're very closely related, but like into a different situation, a different court, all a these different, different culture, people. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, with this particular prince, there's no risk whatsoever of her being a queen consort either. So, like, she wouldn't become queen one day unless all of his uncle's children died, which would right. be quite rare. Um, so, as it as it was, the real prince's cousin um, was the king. 
So I don't, I don't really think she's thought about the duties that she'd have as a duchess either. But arguably, she doesn't need to, or at this point. So talking about like lineage like this, random. But what happens to Prince Charles's brothers when he becomes king? Do they hold the same titles of being prince princes or? Yeah. Okay. okay. So so basically, if you are directly related to the monarch you're a prince or a princess right okay um because you're in their immediate family it but it just it doesn't like nothing really changes when the monarch changes because right now technically the boys are i call them the boys the boys are dukes right now yeah technically i mean we call them prince william and prince harry but are they technically dukes yeah they're both they so that i mean i knew that but i i it didn't occur to me in my mind because so, okay the reason that we call them princes is because prince is a higher ranking title than duke okay but don't forget duchess of surrey blah, right, blah, blah, right, blah. right so think of princess anne right right she's still a princess just because you know, like she's no longer young <laughs> no no i'm aware but i guess like her children aren't right like her her children aren't princesses so um it's I'm, not. I'm, well, it's I'm not, not sure princess... because Prince, Prince, Princess Beatrice and thingy from Prince <gasps> Andrew. But then I don't think Zara, because Zara is her daughter, isn't it? Princess Anne's daughter is Zara, and she's not seen that as that might be because it's Princess Anne's daughter. Because... Mm. But it, whereas I don't know. You know what we need? We need somebody who's a royal expert to come on the show. Yeah, we we do. I mean, <laughs> so it's really interesting because I've been interested in writing fiction that's kind of set in a period when you know the titles of nobility and monarchy kind of are important so i do a lot of reading about this but it sometimes it's just so dense and it's so easy to forget the rules of like how these things all work and i'll, I'll be honest with you all i i know a lot of this kind of stuff through um a video game as well it's called crusader kings 2 um in particular but basically it's a historical game where you kind of you've got characters who are you know all the different ranks of nobility and whatever but that has very kind of strict rules of inheritance and things because the whole point is building up your dynasty and to do that you've got to know what primogenitor is and all that kind of stuff so i'm trying to stay awake i am okay <laughs> anyway i'm just kidding but I mean, the point is, though, like it's it's really interesting, but it's kind of it's all built on these traditions, like I was mentioning earlier, that, you know, we started off with a nobility structure that was basically kings and everyone else. Mm. And then it became kings and in this country, earls and everybody else. Right. Um, earls are equivalent to counts in in Europe. So it's like, I don't know, it's just it becomes so convoluted because over time it just grows because like with any hierarchy, you realize, well, we've got too many of these people. Therefore, we need someone else to be able to like break this up. So we need a new rank. Yeah. And so they just add it over time. So it becomes really difficult to figure it all out. It does. It does. Especially when they all intermarry. And so like, you know, we're talking about the Prince Friedrich here, like in reality as well, the, the families are so interconnected and our current monarchs of Britain are of the house of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, I believe. So, you know, it's it's still highly integrated. Prince Philip is Greek, or was Greek, I guess. Still is. I don't know. <laughs> well, I just would like to say that, see, it's not just the South and Alabama and all you people that are talking about it on TikTok. It's only the South that are interbreeding with one another. So thank you very much. Even the royals are weird. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
Let's not go that far. Yes. You said something about being a traitor earlier. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, think, I think it's treason to call the royalty weird. I don't think so if they're interbreeding with one another. Is that even the way I should say that? They're intermarrying, but then they're also, they're yeah, it's, all related. It's, it's all weird. It's not interbreeding. It's all, but they're all like, they're all like making babies together in the same family. That's what interbreeding is. Oh dear. Oh dear. I'm just saying they always make fun. And I'm from the South. I don't know if people can tell, but they always make fun of people in the South for like marrying your cousin. Well, that's like a huge royalty thing. So don't come at me. <laughs> don't at me, bro. Don't at me about being Southern and everybody marrying everybody. I mean, everybody marrying everybody's cousins, because clearly it happens all the way up to the royalty. So there, take it. I don't think anybody's arguing differently. <laughs> So that is the end of this episode, episode three. I enjoyed it. I feel like it's leading up to a bunch of stuff. Exciting. Yeah. Yeah. We, we see the, the seeds of a few things starting to kind of sprout here, don't we? Mm. So definitely interesting. And again, kind of the first time we watched it, and I know we've mentioned this before, but we watched like four episodes in a row. So kind of coming back and seeing this kind of standalone in a way. It's interesting to see how it impacts us and the things we look for and that kind of stuff. Because the first time you just you're zooming through it. And so Well, I think once we get to these later episodes, you know, there'll be a lot of things that we're gonna be looking at. Oh my days. <laughs> oh, so man. We're gonna try not to to cover too much of that in salacious detail. There's no there's no point. That would be boring. But I, I think we have the explicit E on our episodes. We do, but I think that's just because if we, basically, if we have to mention that there's something in the plot point that drives it that's in that area, but we're trying to keep it clean. <laughs> yes, because of all those children listening to our podcast. Oh, please don't let your kids listen to this podcast. <laughs> well, hopefully your kids have not been watching Bridgerton either. I don't, I don't know what your choices are as a parent if that's, I'm sure there's a lot of people that have started that thinking it's like Jane Austen. And they get to like the fourth or fifth episode with their kid and they're like, oh, turn it off. So <laughs> it's just like, yeah, there's got to be a lot of surprise people because there's stuff in it, obviously, that are not kid friendly. But it starts off as something that you would think would be kid friendly. So after a very quick Google, it appears that in the US anyway, it is a TVMA, which is mature, I believe. Which I believe be. is similar to our 18. Mm, should be. So anywho, excited to recap the next episode for next week. In our last episode, I mentioned the fact that you'd never read any Jane Austen, which is a great shame. Yeah, I, mean, I have been meaning to, but I somehow always find a fantasy or science fiction novel in my, my hand instead. And I do apologize because... There's been many times I've said that I'm going to read something and I just haven't. Oops. I think it means that you don't love me. That's so. not true. Mm. No. So I suggested people give suggestions on what you should read. And some of our group members suggested Northanger Abbey, which I think could actually be a good shout. Um, though it's Austin's probably least famous book and I think her shortest. I think there's still a lot of intrigue in it that could be fun. So plus it's short. So you'd probably read it in a day. You read so fast anyways. I think here in the near future, we should get you to read that and we'll talk about it, uh, what you think about it in the Facebook group and 
probably one of our future episodes as well. So you should follow on with the discussions, everyone, at facebook.com slash group slash Regency Rumors, and we can discuss it there. Interesting. I mean, I'll definitely try and focus on it enough to read it in a day. If... Oh, thanks. No, I'm, <laughs> I don't I don't mean that horribly. It's just that, I, I mean, it, it's true. I, I can read very quickly and I can I can burn through books in a single day. Um, if if I get engrossed in it, and it's just, I mean, and honestly, I did that with Wuthering Heights mm. when I, when I read that for school, um, well for college. That's not it's not a difficult thing for me to do with this genre of, of stuff as long as I kind of get into it. So like, yeah, I guess no promises, but I will definitely try. And I think what I'll do as I'm as I'm reading it is I'll maybe dictate thoughts, like I record them as I go. So then it's easier. So I don't have to like stop and start by handwriting notes and stuff. Um, if I'm, as I'm reading and I, maybe I'll just record myself and then I can get my live thoughts and, and things. Yeah, we'll decide. We'll yeah. decide what to do but with I it. think I'd enjoy talking about it though on, yeah. on the podcast or cool. elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I love Northanger Abbey. So uh, this last weekend, um, I did put us in a very medieval mood. Um, right, because we watched some uh, old adaptation of uh, the Cadvile novels, which is uh, a story or a series of stories about a monk who solves crimes in the 12th century Shrewsbury. Um, the novels were actually written by a woman whose nom de plume was a male or unisex name, by the way. So Edith Pargeter, or Pargeter, Pargeter, I guess, um, via Ellis Peters. I had no idea. Right, yeah, I mean, neither did I, but I, I didn't really know who the author was at all. I've anyway. read a couple of the books, and I had no idea that was a woman. Uh, I feel so sad now. Mm. So, um, we, yeah, we watched a little bit of that, but then we also watched Ever After, which is an interesting take on Cinderella. I love Ever After. And when we were re-watching re it, I was, I was like, this this holds up. Like, the stuff in this, it, yeah. it holds up. Like, the, the troubles that, that she has as... A woman and it's someone who didn't have any rank in society and stuff it i think it holds Although, up so there's a, there's a few things we could talk about there they do we they do, do make some we could do an episode on that <laughs> all right let's let's do an episode yeah, we'll, we'll but, leave that but if, if if people are interested in us recapping ever after put it in the facebook group or email us at a regency girl at gmail.com because we're, we'd be up for recapping other ever things. after mm. you, you enjoyed it didn't you so yeah yeah yeah. because we could go on a full on, we could go on tangent a on that one so uh -huh. um and then we also watched a knight's tale um all in the same night by i don't way. know what we were doing but we we watched like so many medieval stuff in one night but we were definitely in like a medieval mood yeah i, I think historians might come at us it's not i don't think it's necessarily medieval anyway um so i love a knight's tale so much like it, it honestly was if not still is one of my favorite films. It's so good. Every time I watch it and the music, somehow they managed to keep the music relevant for the most part too. Like, mm. like, yeah, the music is older, obviously, but it's, it's the type of music that you'd time you'd, time. You'd hear them at a football match or something. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. so I, I think it's, it's great how they were able to like pick music that would be a bit timeless like that. So, yeah. I mean, I used to watch it on my little, my, my VHS on, on, on my little portable TV that had a video player in it. It was That's a movie that definitely has some bare butts in it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and seeing it in HD now <laughs> was like, oh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also all of the actors in that were fantastic. Obviously, Heath Ledger and 
um you know just well basically all of them <laughs> were just fantastic and um so yeah so a very kind of middle ages slash medieval mood don't know what we'll get up to this weekend in our watching mood but knowing me i'll make us put on some sort of period drama which i know you're so excited about but anyways alas we must say goodbye for now thank you so much for joining us here at regency rumors if you like what you've listened to and you want to follow us as we recap all of bridgerton season one then subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts thank you dear listener for tuning into our podcast and until next time 